First Samuel, the first book of Samuel, and the chapter 24. First Samuel, open your Bibles. Chapter 24 and verse 1. And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men among or upon the rocks of the wild goats. Let me just stop there a wee moment. The largest crowd that ever I spoke to in 40 years live was the last two nights at Northfield some years ago. They told me on the Sunday night that there were a thousand people in the tent. And as I looked in front of me, all I could see as far as out here to that car park was faces. I looked to the right, faces, left faces. There's been a hole in the tent behind me, I'd have run out of it. A thousand people. We're just after reading here that the wicked, evil King Saul chose out 3,000 men to follow a teenager who had 600 men to try and destroy him. And followed him into Engedi. Now, Engedi was a wild mountain terrain on the west bank of the Dead Sea. It was known as the place of caves. They say there were scores of caves, some of them miles long, where sheep went into in the heat and people went into to rest and to sleep, which Saul was doing here. In Gedi was a place where it was almost impossible to find anybody. That's why he had so many men with him. But we'll read on in verse 3. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was the cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. The Hebrew of that is that he went in to sleep or to rest. He was tired, and I'm sure he was, for he'd been battling with the Philistines. You'd have thought that he'd have left David alone. But some of these boys have no mercy. 
And he came to the sheep coats by the way there was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. They were on right up, lying in the sides of the cave. Boy, I'll tell you, it was a breathtaking moment, this. And the men of David said unto him, Now what's the behold here? Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterwards that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master. The Lord has anointed to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. He didn't know anything about it. And David also rose afterwards and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the King, when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee. But mine eyes spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, uh, he was his, his father-in-law, there's no word in the Hebrew for father-in-law. Moreover, my father, see ye, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for not I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. We leave that there. Don't you be reading on down now. Just give me your attention, and we'll cover this as we close some of those verses. Although this incident here happened, took place and was recorded over 600 years ago, it's like the cup in Psalm 23. It's full, pressed down, running over, with many applications and many illustrations for everybody along the road of life. Now, I have a very practical title for this message this morning, and it's this. Don't play with God's plan for your life. Don't play with God's plan for your life. 
And while this message may have more to say to someone of David's age in his late teens or twenties, there's a profound message for all of us. David's in the midst of what we call his fugitive years. And although he's a fugitive and has been for 11 years, had for 11 years, he is right dead on in the center of the will of God. He's on his way to the throne to reign. Anointed of God, he's going to take the throne and he's going to reign in victory one day. And just as you and I as believers this morning make our way to the heavenly kingdom, there are many trials and many afflictions along the road. And it doesn't say that you're not in the will of God if you're in trials. David wrote a couple of psalms around this time, and one of the psalms regarding his fugitive years is, uh, My times are in thy hand. And it's good that our times are in his hand. Another psalm he wrote around that time was Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth from them all. Now that text can cause problems to Christians at times. When they say, I'm in affliction for years and God has never delivered me from it. Sometimes he delivers us out of our afflictions and sometimes he leaves them there. Sometimes he doesn't. But remember this, that one day he's going to deliver us, hallelujah, from them all. Every last one of them. Every conceivable strategy that the devil could use from the world, the flesh and the devil is attacking young David in this mountain terrain. The enemy's tactics is to terrorize and jeopardize God's plan for his life. And you know the devil will use anything to steer you out of the plan of life and into victory and into where God wants you to be. He used the family at times. He used his friends at times. He used the foe. And all guns are after him. All guns are blazing with the powers of hell behind it to thwart the will of God in this man's life and take him out from being the type of our Lord Jesus Christ and a failure. Now, we mustn't go down that road this morning. But I want you to look at verse 4. And the men of David said unto him, Now what's the two beholds here? Behold the day which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine hand, thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do it to him, as it shall seem good unto thee. Now you think of that. These were six hundred of his faithful men. They were with him in the cave of Adullam. 
He taught their hands and their fingers to fight and they loved him. Indeed, some died for him. But here now, there's a problem. They're being used of the enemy unknown to themselves that this is the moment and they're certain this is the opportunity of God. That's what they said, to kill Saul. But it wasn't. And they were going by circumstances. And we would have done the very same. Because of all the hundreds of caves, well, scores of caves in, in, in Gedi, God brought Saul right into the mouth of the cave and there's 3,000 men to outside the cave to the very cave that David was in with his men on further up. He could see, David could see the light of the cave. He could see it. And they're saying, these men, and you and I would have said the same, this is God's will. This is an act of God. Only God in all these caves, and at this time and in this hour, could bring this man within striking distance of David. And I think these men got all excited because they used the word behold as used twice. Behold, the Lord said. You see, they're convinced. They're convinced that one swipe of the warrior's sword and the years of fighting and fleeing will all be over. And by night David will be on the throne and there'll be peace and stability and equity and unity once more brought back into the nation and this evil soul will be put down. And I'm sure these men were saying and whispering to themselves away back in the cave, whispering to themselves, because the echo would run through the cave. This was a very breathtaking moment. Praise the Lord, it's all over. And I think that they held their breath, they must have held their breath, as David tiptoed to the mouth of the cave with the sword drawn in his hand. And remember, he was a warrior. And with the sword raised in full intentions, I believe, as he went down the cave to wipe out Saul, God spoke to him. He intervened. And instead of smiting Saul, he himself was smitten. Now you hear that now. And when he came back with the lump of the skirt or the gown, the tail end of a shirt, if you like, when he came back with it, to the men in the cave, they would have said to themselves, if not to him, what a fool. What a coward. What an opportunity missed. But I tell you, he was no fool, and he was no coward, and he wasn't missing an opportunity. He was a young man anointed with the Holy Ghost, who not only 
who not only behaved himself wisely, but very wisely. He was sensitive to the Spirit of God, which a whole lot of us are not this morning. Sensitive to the Spirit of God. He heard the voice of God some way or another as he lifted that sword. And God spoke to him just the same as he spoke to Abram when he lifted the sword over Isaac. Abraham, Abraham. Just the same as the Lord Jesus spoke to Peter when he lifted the sword to draw, to kill. And Peter was going to kill that high priest servant. And oh, the Lord deflected it and let him take his ear off. He was training Peter. He was training Abraham. And he was training David. The time was not right. Do you hear that now? The time was not right. David wasn't ready for the throne. He has years yet to suffer. He has to stay in the school of the furnace of affliction for many years. Listen, let me say to you this morning, don't run until you're sent. See, he had Spurgeon said if he had 25 more years to live, he would spend 20 of them in preparation. He has to face Nabal in the next chapter, that drunkard Nabal and his wife, Bathsheba. He has to face Achish, king of Gath yet. He has to face Ziglag yet when everything was burnt and he wept till he could weep no more. He's not ready yet. And if he's going to hold the reins for 30 years and be the bad after God's own heart and leave the nation in peace and prosperity and gather the stuff to build the temple and rout the enemies out, he's going to have to be ready. He'll need to wait on God. You know, he wrote in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now here's a bit of application this morning. Am I speaking to someone who to use a phrase, champing at the bit to go to Bible college, go to the mission field, to find a partner in life, to get married, change your job, change your house, change your church. Just because it may seem right doesn't make it right. Circumstances is not enough. Circumstances are what you see and what you feel and what you think and what others think and what others feel and what others say is not enough. Speaking to the child of God now. 
Maybe God has put somebody across your path and you think, oh, this is it. may not be. Maybe disaster. Maybe some opportunity has come in business, some opportunity in your work. Seems right. There's a way which seemeth right unto man. The end thereof are the ways of death. Your parents might say, go for it. Your dear friends might say, this is it, like here. What does God say? What does God say about all this? I'll be eternally grateful to to the late Derek Bingham. He was a great help to me in my early days. And he said to me one day, he says, Bertie, circumstances need to be right. And the gut feeling needs to be there. But you need the word. And when I walked around this place in late 80s, and the river was up to the edge of the barn there, it's all filling. And the slurry tank was where that porch is. Dead hens, the smell of them, and rats running everywhere. I had a gut feeling that this was the place. I had the circumstances because it was up for sale. But I had no word. No word. So I had to wait for the word. And you all know that it came. If David would have done this himself, wouldn't have been God. This wasn't God's way to get him into victory. If he would have put his hand to this, God would have took his hand off it. Do be careful what you touch. Once we put our hand near what God is doing, he will withdraw. He brooks no rivals. And he doesn't need her help. And those of you who are not saved here this morning, don't try to get into the kingdom by your own doing. It'll not work. It's not by any works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to his mercy he saved us. You'll not get in on your mother's prayer, son. You'll not get in on your good works or your church goal. And while it's always God's time While it's not always God's time for the saints of God, it's always God's time for the sinner. Behold now is the accepted time. Look at verse 5. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. 
What a Christ-like, gentle, loving, forgiving spirit David had. What he's saying here, how awful was it for me, how wrong it was for me, even to touch the skirt of the Lord's anointing. You see, friends, what, listen, believer, what seems right to others may not be right for you. Just because others can do something doesn't say you can do it. That depends on spirituality. If you're a carnal believer this morning, you'll have no sensitive spirit about a small sin. This was a small sin. But the sin. And just because others can do things and you as a Christian, you look, how can they do that? You don't be put off by that. For you're on a different level of spirituality. David was on a different level of spirituality here than these boys. It's, it grieved him. He, he, he repented. It was like a sword going into his soul. Oh, blessed conscience and blessed Holy Ghost when we're convicted of little things. <laughs> not talking about big things. I'm talking about little things. Did you ever do something or say something or go somewhere? And in the cool light of day, you said, said, I should have never said that. I should have never done that. I should never have went there. He afterwards regretted it. Well, tell me about it. David had a sensitive, a lovely, Christ-like spirit. May God give it to me. May God show me that the little things grieve him. And if we touch the Lord's anointing, let him be an elder, let it be a leader, minister. Let it be a church. Let it be the nation of Israel. Let it be his anointed word as that rascal toured up in Belfast the other day. You can't touch the Lord's anointed. You're on a collision course with God. One flash of the sword and David would have regretted it all his life and he directed the whole business. I was reading about Peter the other day in Mark 14 and verse 77. That's about a week ago, you know it. It got into my soul. After he had blasphemed Christ and the cock had crowned, here's what it says. When he thought on these things, he wept bitterly. 
when he thought on these things. But I look back in my unsaved days and I think on things I could still weep. Did Peter not touch the ultimate Lord's anointed? Uzzah struck the ark and God struck him. Miriam struck Moses and Moses and God struck Moses and Miriam. Just be careful now what you're saying. Another lesson that goes to the heart, and I'm going to be over in good time. Another lesson that goes to the heart of this story is this. Friends, men, and family are the best of men. While they might be good friends of yours, while they might be have you all things right to help you, are not always right. And because you know, now listen to what I'm going to say, because you know they have your good at heart. Because you know that they love you and they want to help you. It's difficult to say no to them. The hardest thing that David probably could have done here was to go back to these people with a skirt of the robe in his hand and said, sorry boys, can't do it. Sorry friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, sorry. Can't do it. I know you love me, but can't do it. After we came here, I had an old Ford Sierra 2000, she was a two, three hundred, and she was wrecked. And I'm not going to plead poverty because I've never been in poverty since the Lord saved me. But I hadn't a big lot. And a man approached me one day, a friend, a dear friend of mine, years before I come here. He approached me one day and he gave me an open check and he says, Bertie, you go and get yourself a car, any car you want. And I was humbled and I put the check in my pocket and I went up to the house and we're in the old barn at the time, I went up to the bung. And there was a ladies' outing down in Portrush, and Pat was on the ladies' outing, just on a Saturday. And I rang Pat. There was no mobiles then, but I rang her where she was. And I'll never forget the words she said to me when I told him who it was and what I'd got. Bertie, be careful. Be careful. And the more I go down to pray with that check, the more I 
knew that God said, don't you touch that. And the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done was to bring the check back to the man. And I said to him, I don't know why. And I'm sorry to offend you, but I don't know why. But I can't take it. That man never hasn't spoke to me since in 23 years. And I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't take it. We're, we're finished here. We can't finish the rest of it. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. And David arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stripped with his face to the earth. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest these men's words, saying, Behold, David, seek thy hurt. I don't seek thy hurt this day. Thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand, and I didn't do it. And he held up the robe in front of him. I say to you, if only David would have went his way, there was no need for this. I think this is one of the places where he didn't behave very wisely. I may be wrong, and you may read commentaries another way, but I don't think he should have ever followed him and waved the trophy in his face because it didn't do any good. All it did was provoke a couple of crocodile tears from Saul, if you read the story, and for him to make an oath that he wouldn't keep, and he had no notion of keeping it because he pursued him after for years. Oh, how right he was to confess before God, but he had no need on this occasion to go near man. If he'd have rode on, as the cowboy says, and said nothing, it would have been far better for him. We don't have to try to vindicate ourselves before the world. We don't have to glorify ourselves and say, see me, see what I could have done. See what I could have done, and I didn't. And there's the proof of it. There's the proof of it. Is that not yours, Saul? Is that not yours? Saul, look, that's mine. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. There's times when we just have to walk on. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will repay, said the Lord. Because I would have said to David, David, if it were not for the grace of God and the mercy of God, you'd have murdered him. <laughs> and I often think to myself, if it were not for the grace and the mercy of God, what would I not have done? There's times, friend, we just need to bow the head and shut our mouths and say nothing. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. 
When he threatened, he suffered not. If ever there was one, and I'm closing now, if ever there was one who could say, look what I have done for you or could have done to you, it was the Lord Jesus. Many times he could have and should have wiped us out. But he took, he just tipped the hem of the garment to train us and to teach us. Oh, mercy there was great and grace was free. Look at verse 17 as we come to a close. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, where I have rewarded the evil. Does that not? When we look at the Lord Jesus, I tell you, he's more righteous than we. Did he not reward you good and me good? All the good things and great things that he's done for us and we evil. But look at verse 19. For if a man find his enemy, this is Saul now, will he let him go well away? If a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Well, I want to tell you, my friend, he let me well away. Hallelujah. For I was his enemy. I cursed him. I blasphemed him. And I tell you, he let me, he brought me up out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay, set my feet upon the rock, and I'm well away this morning. I'm on my way home. Glory to God. And if I'd have got the just reward of my deeds, oh, he's more righteous than I. He's more merciful than I. He's more loving than I. And when he could have slew me, he loved me, died for me, and rose again for me. All glory to the cross work of Christ. Let me close with this verse. It sums up. Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despises you, despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of the Father which you have. Oh, I tell you, let us keep our eyes fixed on him and go forward bearing no grudges, bearing no regrets, but thanking God for what he has prevented us from and where he is bringing us to. May God bless these words to, his heart, to your heart this morning.